talking about it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML. Hey, it's Hamilton Today. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. Tom McKay is on the board. Wheeler's skin is in the cloud. In the newsroom, Dida Weeks and Dave Woodard. The Toronto Raptors' comeback has fallen short. But another great run to be proud of. Oh, did you hear? Elon Musk is buying the Raptors! Oh, never mind. Fake news on Twitter. Here, Scott Thompson! Good afternoon. It is 3.08. I'm Scott Thompson. Great news today. Uh, Any one of these stories would be a big story and worth bringing in Dr. Omar Khan for. But uh, Moderna in the News Times 2 today, uh, they are applying for approval for their their, uh, pediatric version of their Moderna uh, COVID-19 vaccine to get approval in the United States and Canada for those under the age of six years uh, of six years and also announcing today Moderna teaming up with McGill and building a plant in Montreal to produce this vaccine for uh, now and obviously what could happen in the future. Let's bring in Dr. Omar Khan, Assistant Professor, Institute of Biomedical Engineering and Department of Immunology at the University of Toronto, and is with us now. Doctor, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. Doing well, thanks. So I remember, doctor, obviously a couple of years ago, uh, we were informed that we don't make this stuff and we had to wait in line for everyone else. And now, boy, we're, we're looking at Moderna building a plant. Tell us th- about the significance of this announcement today. It's great to have something on shore and in Canada that can help with the capacity because one of the great things, one of the big things that we learned is the need for what we call distributed manufacturing, being able to make something in more than one place to help out with search demand. So Canada being able to contribute to that is fantastic. And uh, any news as to where or, or not, sorry, uh, where, but when this will all be up and running, at what point will it actually be producing vaccine? How long does something like this take? Well, construction is slated to start in 2022 sometime, so this year, and they expect it to be up and running by 2024 at the latest, hopefully. So that's when we can expect some, you know, products that are coming out that can help people. Talk about the relationship between Moderna and McGill University. We're certainly seeing that in in many industries in, in this uh, global pandemic where silos have come down and institutions are starting to work even more closely. Talk about this relationship. Well, let's first mention something about McGill. It Previously, it had received a, a great deal of federal investment to build a national research council area. Yeah. And what they did, build a lab that can make vaccines, not necessarily mRNA vaccines, but they had this plan in place. So that was wonderful to see. And it looks like based on that, all the experience they got building that out and and that really maybe feeds into this. So perhaps that's one of the reasons why this has gone forward there, but it's just fantastic to see that all the hard work that people have done to make, you know, old school vaccines, it's still being able to uh, leverage that capacity and and knowledge to help make the next generation of stuff. We certainly know where we've come from. Uh, What does this mean for the future? What this means is that there's a couple of things. Well, first of all, um, Moderna is looking for, you know, great collaborators to help them build new vaccines against completely different diseases. So that's going to be great to potentially help there. And honestly, if we want to kind of get past this entire 
pandemic, we're going to have to have more vaccines around the world, just better global distribution. And one great way to do that is to make more of it. And the more we make, uh, hopefully, the more that price will come down. And that's what I'm hoping to see. So more places can can get this stuff. Are you surprised it's Moderna? I know you're not a biz prof, but uh, Pfizer was such a, a solid part of our vaccination process here. Are you surprised or does it matter? It doesn't matter, honestly, but let's just say that Moderna's in Cambridge, Massachusetts. Montreal's not a very far drive away mm. from there. So it, it, geographically, it makes sense. But it, also, we, we have to remember that you know, uh, there are a lot of Canadians that work at Moderna. And mm-hmm. uh, so it, it makes sense. They, they know the quality of people we train up here and whether they go down to Cambridge, Massachusetts to work or now they can just stay in Canada and work. It's all great. Okay, so now uh, the second announcement, that being uh, looking for approval for kids under six for the COVID-19 vaccine. Your thoughts on this? And I know there's been some hesitancy uh, among those under 12. Uh, Are you anticipating that with the same thing with the under six? I think hesitancy is something that's always going to be there. And we can really make inroads through education. So, you know, working on that. But yeah, we can expect a bit. I think that's always normal. But what we should really look to is is the safety data. If if this trial data is indeed looks as good as it does, that means this stuff has been really safe in kids. So that alone should give people confidence. Any more information on whether we'll need one shot or a continuation of boosters? I think we've had this discussion before. And, and how would that apply to kids? It looks like what may happen next is that uh, for this particular application, it's for the original version of this vaccine, but in trials right now are a new version of the vaccine that's also tailored for things like Omicron. Mm. So it looks like that is going to be probably their next clinical trial, uh, an, an updated boost for everybody, including little kids and, and the pediatric age group. So we can expect that, but uh, in the end, all of this does very important things. It it helps slow down viral evolution by helping you clear infection much faster. The less time the virus has to replicate, the less mistakes it makes. And that's how it makes, that's how it evolves. It makes mistakes. And some of those mistakes randomly are good. And that's how it gets worse and worse. And we can stop that by clearing infections fast. What would you, what advice would you have for parents who might be concerned? Honestly, the first thing you do is, talk to your family doctor, you have a pediatrician, ask them. That's what they're there for. You should never be making this decision in a vacuum. Like you can get tons of information, but if you want information in context that's appropriate to your child, talk to your doctor. And remember, clinical trials, the first and foremost thing is that they look for safety. That's it. So even if it works great, but it's not safe, it won't, it won't go through. So at the very least, it's got to be safe and it's shown to be safe so far. Dr. Omar Khan with us, Assistant Professor, Institute of Biomedical Engineering and Department of Immunology, University of Toronto. Doctor, thanks so much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. Thanks. Bye. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. Keep you abreast of what's going on in our nose to the grindstone here. Hamilton Bulldogs have done it. They've uh, swept Peterborough Peets in four games, seven to four lives. Last night, it was a bit of a barn burner to talk more about all of this. Reed Duffy with us, play-by-play announcer for your Hamilton Bulldogs. He is with us now. Reed, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. 
Oh, Scott, you got to give me a warning before you do the, the, the horn. That that one got me. I've been laughing here for the last few seconds. <laughs> Did you see? They're, every so often, you know, you got like one going, what? oh, here's one now. Then they, then they slow down. Stay off the sidewalk. That guy's in a scooter. Anyway, it just reminds me of a bad Seinfeld episode, that's all. Uh, and here's hoping, you know, I'm making light of it, but we want all this safety, uh, all the safety uh, to be considered and such. And if you're going to protest, uh, do it so uh, in the correct ways, whatever that is. All right, let's talk hockey, Reed. A bit of a barn burner last night, a high-scoring game. Yeah, and the Peterborough Peets did what I think everyone would have thought they would have done. They, they wanted to finish off with some pride on home ice, and, the Bulldogs took it away from them a bit early on, getting that 4 nothing lead, and then Peterborough fought back. Some penalty trouble in the second period, some players off the ice. Peterborough gets a couple, gets back on the board. They eventually get the game to 5-3 to three by the end of the second, but then in the third, a pair from the Bulldogs. McTavish again on the power play with a brilliant strike, and Lawson Shirk goes about 160 feet into the open net, and that was uh, all she wrote for the first round. So, I uh, understand the second period a little feisty. Things got a little uh, a little out of hand at times. Yeah, a little too feisty, I think. And I think the Bulldogs will be happy that this series is now behind them. Uh, it was a very tough physical test for this team. It might be the toughest physical test that they'll face. They're going to face some teams that will challenge them more on a skill side, on a uh, strategical side. But that was a tough physical battle for four games. And I, I think they'll be happy to have that in the rearview mirror after a whole bunch of uh, penalties and misconducts and the like all the way through this series, and especially, as you said, Scott, in the second. Uh, are you surprised at such a high-scoring game? No, that's the way the Bulldogs have played against the Peets all season long. They, they hit 10 twice against this Peterborough team during the season. So scoring 24 goals over four games does not overly surprise me in the series. I think that Peterborough needed to keep the scoring against down, obviously, through this series. They have players that can score, but they couldn't stay out of the penalty box long enough to continue the momentum on. And with that Bulldog power play, that top unit is just downright deadly. And if you give them too many chances, they're going to strike. They're going to put you behind the eight ball. And if you're chasing the game and the Bulldogs can roll guys like Cameron Jacki over the boards to shut you down, that's a recipe for disaster for the opposition. You talked about this being a tough series, but the good news is it's over in, in four. Uh, everybody healthy. What about moving on? Is everybody uh, upright and retaining fluids? Yes, everybody appears to be uh, with all their body parts through four games, which is about what we needed to move forward. So now they'll get a week off, which is really nice. The second round uh, can't start at the earliest until Thursday of next week. So, They'll be able to rest any bumps and bruises. But in terms of major injury, it looks like everybody came through all right. And uh, barring anything uh, unforeseen, we should have a full lineup to start round two. So what happens between now and then? Because, you know, sometimes when you get the week off and you're not playing as much, you, you know, you get a little, uh, a little lax. I mean, obviously that doesn't happen in playoff hockey. But uh, what about losing focus? What, what's the plan, and, and how do you keep that focus over that, that, that downtime? Sounds like a couple of days off to let the guys sort of rest up and, and get themselves ready to go again, and then it'll be right back into the routine that they've had, and that's practice and getting through the drills, getting through the video, getting through all the things that they need to do to stay sharp. One thing that's been so impressive about the way Jay McKee handles his team is that he has them ready every time they hit the ice. I know it's not just Jay 
uh, himself. It's the, it's the staff in total, but him at the head of it really has this team operating like a professional team. They come to the rink, whether it's morning skate practice or game, ready to take care of business. This is the most professional team I've been around in the OHL, and, and these guys have one goal in mind. So I don't think there's going to be any loss of focus. And I can tell you, Scott, from seeing it last night, the guys celebrated on the ice. They did their thing. They went through the handshake line, a lot of hugs, a lot of fist bumps. And then by the time we were riding home last night, it was a little bit quiet. It was everybody ready to move on to the next task. There's no looking back. It's all looking forward. Wow, that is uh, that is focus. You'd think it would be, be a bit of a festive atmosphere on the way home. So uh, obviously time off. Everyone else isn't finished yet. So what are the options here, and, and which way could this go? So three potential options moving forward. If Oshawa were to make the comeback on Kingston, it would be the Generals in round two. Now they're down 3-1, so that's starting to seem unlikely. Uh, the, the most likely scenario is the winner of the Barry Colts and Mississauga Steelhead series. Now, that presents two interesting options, because although that's a close-fought chess match of a series, those are two very different teams. So depending on which one comes out, the Bulldogs will have to game plan for a different style of team, whether it's Barry with a bit more up-tempo offense, or whether it's Mississauga who really likes to play a defensive chess match style. One way or the other, it would be an entertaining series, and it would be a different challenge for the Bulldogs, which I think, Scott, will be key moving forward. Each series, they're going to have to look at a different opponent and a different style of game, and I think that's helpful in the long run. Especially if you're concerned about overconfidence and you're the favorite to win. I mean, this is the challenge ahead of you. Yeah, now I think that favorite status starts to come down a little bit. We talked about it at the beginning of round one about hearing the, the noise and knowing the expectations that are on you and how that can contribute to a bit of a slow start. As they go into a second round, there were five teams coming into this, these playoffs in the Eastern Conference that were legitimate contenders. Barry and Mississauga certainly involved in that conversation, and Mississauga spent a good chunk of the season around the top of the Eastern Conference standings. So I think that the favorite status is still there, but now you're in against a team where you're expecting them to come out and give you a really tough series. So I think the overconfidence will definitely not be an issue, not just because the Bulldogs aren't that kind of team, but because they're going to play a really good hockey club no matter who they've got in the second round. Your Hamilton Bulldogs sweeping the Peterborough Peets and waiting to see who is next. Reed Dutch, uh, Duthie with us, play-by-play announcer for your Hamilton Bulldogs. Reed, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. Thanks, Scott. I'm already tired of the waiting game, though. Can we play Hungry Hungry Hippos or something? <laughs> I'll work on that for you. Let's bring in Alyssa Freeman. Lost to chat about PR and pop culture expert. She is with us now. Alyssa, thank you for your time. I hope you're well. Yes, thank you for having me, Scott. Are you? Did you want to comment on uh, the Rolling Thunder, uh, whatever it is? And, and, you know, because at this time during the Freedom Convoy, we had reporters out. They were, because, uh, you know, this convoy was from east and west and se- uh, north and such and was all converging in on Ottawa. But there doesn't seem to be anything staging. It doesn't seem to be any motorcycles. You know, it's interesting. Before I came on, Scott, I actually looked up the origination of Operation Rolling Thunder, where it came from. Do you know? It was the title of a gradual and sustained aerial bombardment campaign conducted by the U.S. uh, (laughs) during the Vietnam War. So when you look at 
something like that. I mean, so, you know, the name itself is, I think, is supposed to strike fear in your hearts. But uh, this is a, you know, what this is a test of optics and image for the city of Ottawa right now because many people feel, myself included, that they absolutely mishandled the original uh, attempt of the convoy, which uh, came under the guise of, uh, you know, rights and freedoms and vaccine freedoms, but had nothing to do with that at all. So I think this is a test for the Ottawa police. After all, the last chief got fired over his handling of, of the last uh, infiltration of, of the city. So it remains to be seen just how powerful and mighty this uh, convoy of motorcycles is supposed to be. I'm not seeing much on it right now. Because I'm not seeing anything hold, on it right now. No, I know. And if it doesn't hold the same intensity, quite frankly, Scott, as the last uh, convoy did, the trucker, I don't even want to call it trucker convoy. I'll just say convoy. Um, then that's certainly going to take the wind out of the sails of this far right extremist campaign. Oh, stop using far right. It's extremists on both the left and the right. The anarchists are in there just as much as anybody else is. Man, oh, man. Okay, well, it's um, still I don't know if demonstration. They're... All right, never mind. If Go there ahead. were if there were groups of people gathering somewhere, there's news crews out there right now, Alyssa, you know that, looking for this stuff and it ain't around. I know. And so when you think like so what what's going to happen? You've invested in having a news crew out there and that's the camera person, that's the uh the reporter, maybe there's a sound person involved with it. So there's definitely a a sense of uh you know, you're spending money to in order to cover this story. And there better be some sort of story. So that's when you see how the um, media sort of turns on a dime. Okay, you're there. Nothing's happening. So therefore, what is the narrative <laughs> going to be? And that's exactly what's going to happen, Scott. So if there's no rolling and there's no thunder, then you'll see how the narrative <laughs> will get disseminated by the media. And that is basically going to provide the color commentary for this effort. Oh, hang on, Alyssa. Here they come. Here they come. Oh, 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 oh. Oh, it reminds me of that Seinfeld episode with them on scooters. You know what I mean? That's what yes, I'm picturing. I've seen them all. all right, let, let's move on from this. Uh, Moderna in Montreal, your thoughts on this? Obviously, two years ago, we were waiting for vaccine to come in. Um, now they've announced uh, that Moderna is going to build a plant in Montreal for this. Surprise, it's not Pfizer since they were our go to vaccine in all of this. I guess it's whoever they can make a deal with, Scott. And I think the only thing that I'm happy about is that we're going to have a plant. It's from a reputable pharmaceutical yeah. and it's going to be in Canada. And that means that we can rely on our own business to get our own vaccines as opposed to going and you know, seeking them outside of the country. Uh, any idea as to why this happened the way it did so quickly? It seems that you know nobody was really chatting about this. And then all of a sudden, boom, it's here. Wow, look at this. You know, people have sort of taken their eye off the ball uh, out of uh, the concern of why don't we have our own uh, vaccine manufacturing plant here in the country. Uh, it was very, very hot in the news, as you just said, Scott, when vaccines were anything and everything that we were all talking about it. But, you know, listen, as we watch the news, our attention span is very fickle. So quite honestly, why not try and make the deal when the spotlight isn't on you, i.e. the government in terms of uh, this, um, you know, this plant announcement and then just sort of spring it on us. And it's sort of a piece of good news, but it still catches us uh, on our heels and it also catches all the critics on their heels, too. And, and it is Friday. So if you're going to make an announcement and you want to control the news cycle, do it on a Friday.
has uh, I wanted to ask you if you felt that the 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 attitude, the way we communicate or look at advertising has changed. I remember the old line, "Fake it till you make it." Um, whereas now I think people question that. I'm I'm talking about the specific ad about a Nova Scotia listed house, and it was instead instead of trying to cover up that the people that lived here were very heavy smokers, uh, they've listed it as a smokers paradise, and really kind of um, uh, jokingly marketed this place as boy you're gonna need this you're gonna need that but and it sold in a day has our attitude about the way we interpret the message changing i think it is i think people are looking more for truth in advertising and that's not uh, a new uh, buzz phrase that's something that we've always said and you know the way I, I read this article and the pictures that they showed honestly it looked like hoarders live there and yeah. one of the lines was the backyard is huge it'll be great for you to pitch a tent while you're renovating the house. So the yeah. fact that they were up front, people knew what they were getting. Uh, essentially, at this point, you're not really you're not really paying for the house, are you? You're paying for the dirt. You're paying for the land. Yeah. And I do mm-hmm. believe they sold the house for $260,000, and I'm sure that the owners took that money and ran. There you go. Honesty in advertising. Maybe it's coming back. Alyssa Freeman with us, PR and pop culture expert. Alyssa, as always, thanks so much for the time. Be well. Oh, there's a go again there. Be careful now. When there's an issue, Scott is all in on getting to the heart of it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. Uh, kind of waiting to see if anything um, uh, transpires in regard to uh, the Rolling Thunder uh, uh, protest or whatever it is that things were. Oh, here comes somebody now. Here, oh, here there, there's one off the sidewalk, please. Uh, but we really haven't heard anything. And, you know, this time when the uh, Freedom Convoy was starting, we had reporters out along routes, the QEW, the 401, whatever, and because it was coming together. I don't think, uh, I think, uh, I'm not sure there's a protest. Um, there might be a few people riding through on motorbikes, but I, I, I'm not sure we're, we're gearing up for something like we saw last time. And, and obviously, uh, the good news is, is that, uh, the police are certainly prepared for it this time. But let's bring in uh, Global TV reporter Brittany Rosen, who uh, we've been looking to try to find something near Ottawa, but she's in Toronto and says that uh, there is stuff planned for other areas as well. Brittany, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. Hey, I am doing great. Thank you. How are you? I'm doing good. So you're in Toronto. Are, are there events or some sort of a protest plan for Toronto? That's right, Scott. So there are roughly... 14 protests. This is a mix of large-scale and small-scale protests, demonstrations, and celebrations that are happening this weekend, according to uh, Toronto Police Chief James Raymer. He says this is quite common as we're heading into the summer and we we start to see more of these events pop up. Uh, But we are going to see a similar response to when members linked to the Freedom Convoy in February uh, rolled into the city. We saw thousands of people demonstrating a few months ago. And so there's going to be a similar response. Uh, We're not sure to what extent, you know, um, how many officers are going to be out, how many road closures there are going to be. But we know that officers are going to be out. And particularly here in Toronto, there's been a 22% rise in hate crimes. So that's another thing that officers are going to be keeping their eyes on 
the hate crime unit is going to be out. They're going to be monitoring these events and they're going to be, you know, arresting anyone who has any law unlawful behavior. They're going to be collecting evidence on suspected hate crimes, uh, hate speech or any um, hateful signage or anything like that. So, uh, uh- yeah. So, so no, I was, uh, you were talking about how, you know, the police said there's a certain amount of demonstrations going around in Toronto. Uh, we're getting into that season. Are, do we know if any of these are directly related or related to the Rolling Thunder uh, protest at all? Police have been quite tight-lipped about this, but I mean, mm. from what we gathered happened, you know, a few months ago, um, it could be anticipated that individuals could be linked uh, to the, the Rolling Thunder uh, protests that are happening in Ottawa. Uh, we know that these individuals, police and, you know, security experts that I spoke to, I spoke to uh, Christian uh, Loypret, who is a security expert uh, based in Ottawa. Um, and he said, we don't have a lot of concrete information on, you know, these individuals' backgrounds or, you know, the exact reason that they are protesting. But we definitely could see uh, people that are connected uh to this, you know, rolling thunder. And we've also seen that there are potential ties with the the rolling thunder Ottawa event. Uh, They could have links to the Freedom Convoy as well. Um, A number of potentially related groups that are going to be protesting this weekend. Do you know if we've heard any reports? Because we remember with the, the Freedom Convoy, there were staging areas. They were coming into Ottawa from, you know, all various different regions, east and west and such, along the 401 and QEW. Have we heard anything? Has anybody seen anybody? Here in Toronto, you know, um, it, it's been quiet. Um, nothing that I have heard of. You know, we saw the response last time with, police setting up those those barricades they really you know had uh serious preparation uh in anticipation for uh members of the freedom convoy to roll through uh but from our knowledge you know we haven't seen anything like that yet we haven't really been seeing you know any motorcyclists or anything like that we haven't really been we haven't been seeing police putting up those barricades or anything like that they they're staying tight-lipped about this again they're just saying they are going to be increasing their presence for this weekend. All right. Brianna Rosen with us. Uh, sorry, Brittany Rosen with us from Global News. Make sure you're watching Global tonight for more on all of this. Brittany, thanks so much for the time. Be well. Thank you. You as well. Take care. Tim Powers is with us. Chairman, Summa Strategies, Managing Director, Abacus Data. He's with us now. Tim, how are you? I hope you're doing well. Scott, I feel like I'm your, your convoy reporter again today. I'm waiting for Tim Allen and everybody else to roll in for Wild Hogs, too, but not, not much. Well, you know, I'm. Well, I, I in, but by this time, there was staging going on for the Freedom Combo. Oh, hang on a sec. Hang on a sec. Oh, here comes one now, Tim. Oh, 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 no. Hey, hey, easy, easy. Wait, wait, wait. That's pretty much it, Tim. Uh, well, you know, we had reporters on the QEW, on the 401. They were talking to all these people that were lining up. There were all these trucks and things going by. I don't even think I've heard of anybody in staging areas. I mean, I, you know, somebody's reporting that there's somebody outside Ottawa on Highway 7 on a motorbike. But yeah. other than that, is is this is this uh, all for naught, do you think, Tim? Well, I, so far the residents of Ottawa are hoping that's the case. Look, I'll, 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 so two or three times this morning I've come in and out of the downtown core. As I mentioned to you before, when the convoy was happening, my son's school is right down in the core. He's about a kilometer and a bit 
from Parliament Hill. I'm actually sitting outside his school now, trying not to look like too much of a creep, Scott, as I'm about to go inside and uh, pick him up from after-school care. This area was also a staging area for police last time. A few minutes ago, just before I came on the air with you, I saw some police officers um, here going around, basically just getting coffees at the moment. If you drive through this part of town, so he's on uh, Elgin by the canal, so out, as I say, about a kilometer from Parliament Hill, you go a little further down in, you will see the concrete barricades. They are manned today. Uh, they haven't been manned since the Freedom Convoy. There, are, I've seen OPP officers at them. I've seen City of Ottawa officers at them. I just came across town, so we live in the Westboro area part of town. Um, traffic was normal. Uh, there was no no delays, no um, motorcyclists. I, I did see on the way over, as I had seen before during the convoy, um, some uh, police vehicles at some of the key exit and entry points for what we call the Queensway, uh, the 417 that runs through the heart yeah. of the city. And last time that was very uh, tough, toughly monitored and controlled. So one thing to take, one take or two takeaways. One, if people are coming, they aren't apparently here yet. And two, the police, unlike last time, are making a very visible early display of their presence. And if you've been here in Ottawa uh, or listened to any of the media from here over the last uh, five days, you'll know they've been very um, specific in providing clear warnings to anybody who comes to town and uh, strays from what their protest is supposed to do. And it is good to see that the Ottawa police have a plan in place. And, you know, if they do arrive, they come in one side and basically go go out the other. But are, are you surprised you're not seeing uh, more now? I feel sorry if there's any just normal, everyday person riding around on a motorbike today. They're probably going to get pounced on because they think there's some sort of freedom fighter. But, I, I think people are... I mean, are, 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 are I was going to say, I think people are uh, are pleased so far, and hopefully this stays for the weekend. And uh, I think the residents of Ottawa would prefer the overkill. That yeah, they yeah. rather the heavy. Of course, because there's still a lot of lingering frustration and anxiety around that. Now, of course, this doesn't help the brand of Ottawa with the rest of the country because people will think Ottawanians are more of a bunch of whiners than they normally are. And as I speak, uh-huh. you just see one, two, three, four police motorcycles head downtown. So again, a very visible presence. Um, the other thing here that's evident and clear uh, as it relates to local politics, Scott, and you won't be surprised by this, the police are going to be evaluated quite significantly by the residents of Ottawa this weekend. So you'll remember the casualties of the Freedom Convoy were one police chief and a whole police services board. So uh, the interim chief and the current police services board don't want to suffer the same fate. So they will go for overkill to make sure uh, that uh, they're seen to be adhering to the wishes of their particular taxpayers. So let me ask you this question, Tim. Is this more about a police demonstration and a police exhibition of how they have control? More that than a protest. It could very well end up being that. I mean, I think it's too early to say that, but certainly at this stage, the police are wanting you to see, uh, and again, that's, I think it's providing comfort, uh, that they're very, very present. I mean, Scott, even this morning, I dropped my son off at 8 o'clock, okay? So n- n- nowhere did I hear in any of the news reports uh, that uh, whatever this 
uh, thunder rally is, rolling thunder, where they coming in at 8 o'clock. Now, maybe police just good planning. They're out there at 8 o'clock. But let's just say if you were doing the morning traffic commute in Ottawa, as many of us do, you saw the police. They wanted you to know that they were there, and you saw them at the places you expected to see them. All right, Tim Powers with us, Chairman, Summa Strategies and Managing Director of Abacus Data, trying to live the weekend in peace in Ottawa. Thank you, Tim, for the call. Much appreciated. Have a great weekend. Be well. You too, my friend. Bye. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. Let's bring in Michael Tobe, columnist for Troy Media, uh, Looney Politics as well, contributor to the National Post and Washington Times, former speechwriter for Stephen Harper. He's with us now. Michael, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. Hello, I am Scott, and actually, I have actually written about my love for heavy metal many years ago in the National Post, way back in 2010, which shows more of the gray hair on my head, I guess. I've done it a few times. Never be shocked. It's not designed for a particular group of people or one individual. It actually fits a lot of realms. <laughs> there you go. And what about the hearing? Is it still doing well? Because I'm losing mine. I'm sorry? What? Hmm? <laughs> there you go. My All right, so fine, I think. Before we get started and yeah. talk about budget or whatever and politics, you, uh, any thoughts on the Rolling Thunder protest? Um, I remember when the convoy thing was going on. Uh, we had reporters on the QEW and the 401. There were people there to interview. There were trucks going by. There doesn't seem to be anything going on here really at all. And, and, and maybe, you know, there's something somewhere in a secret staging area that I'm not seeing. But I would think if there was, TV crews would be all over that. This, to yeah. me, seems more like an exercise by Ottawa police, uh, an exhibition per se, to show that they are ready for something rather than the protest itself. Am, am I missing something here? No, I think your analysis is about right. Um, the Rolling Thunder motorcycle rally, um, while it obviously frustrated some people in Ottawa to hear that another protest was coming through, they had directly stated through their organizers and whatnot what the route was going to be. And the plan was basically that they were just going to go through the downtown. Yeah. You know, it was going to be relatively quick. They were just going to make a statement, you know, whatever it may be. And then they were going to go on their merry way. In and out. And unfortunately, no, but what happened was, unfortunately, is that the Ottawa police and some municipal councillors just, I wouldn't say they necessarily went ballistic, although one councillor did, but they just, they really didn't want to experience something similar to Freedom Convoy 2.0. Mm-hmm. And they started to change their so, things so much and position so much that they ruffled a lot of feathers. You know, the Ottawa citizen had one of the organizers quoted in saying that, well, because of this, it's going to be a free-for-all instead. We'll see what happens. But, yeah, I think in many ways, very briefly, it is just a, a show of force from Ottawa police trying to state that they now do have control of the city and that no matter what, a prote- what protest or rally comes through, they are more well-prepared for it. The problem is they showed their hands, they've caused certain amounts of problems and frustration, and they've opened the door to, hopefully it doesn't happen, but they've opened their door to the possibility that it'll be a much bigger thing than it should have been, when it really should have just been a very simple protest and off they go. I think it's, again, the theory of making a mountain out of a molehill. And, and, you know, it's certainly good to see that they're prepared and it looks like they've got a plan. And I think that makes sure. the people of Ottawa feel a little bit more secure this weekend. Uh, but, I yeah, I, I, I'm I'm not seeing the organization. I'm not sure there's, no. you know, I mean, we'll wait and see tomorrow if a pile of bikes go riding through town. And I'm guessing that's what you may see. But, I mean, yeah, I, I don't think that there's anywhere near any sort of 
protests lingering or, or growing on the outskirts of town. At least there's no evidence of that at this time. No, and there was no evidence from the very start either. Um, again, I think just a lot of them are just, you know, I wouldn't say they're necessarily, you know, jittery about everything, but they are concerned that this is going to happen a second time. No matter what your position was on the original Freedom Convoy, as I said to you multiple times and to others as well, it was a mostly peaceful protest. There were, you know, is anything perfect? No, but then again, no protest or rally ever is. But I thought it was actually pretty clean for the most part. It just lasted too long and caused yeah. frustration to a lot of people. So for that reason, I can understand why Ottawa police would want to have a plan of action in play. I think that's perfectly fine. But again, I just don't see this being the same thing. And there's no indication that it will be. All right, let's talk about the Ontario budget that came down yesterday. Uh, Obviously, that will launch into the provincial election campaign, election coming up June 2nd. Your thoughts on what you saw? Uh, Many, (laughs) it looks like he's ticked off uh, people on both sides of the political spectrum here. Uh, Some saying that it's too much a centre budget. Your thoughts? Yeah, I mean, this really is not a budget per se. I do agree with the argument, and I I actually said in a couple places yesterday, this is really an election platform. That's what it is. So basically what Doug Ford and the Ontario PCs have presented is something that could potentially be a budget. But as his own, as you know, the premier's own finance minister said, Mr. Bethelani, it may not turn out to be that way based on, you know, economic economic conditions, forecasting and other things that occur during that time. But as a, you know, but as an election platform, it's pretty hard for the left-leaning parties, the Liberals, the NDP, the Greens, and others, to actually make a lot of arguments against it. They'll obviously try to increase those numbers and add certain benefits and things to it, along with other parts of their platform. But Doug Ford basically has come out with an election plan, which I think a lot of people are kind of familiar with. We saw it all during last year's federal election, where everyone tried to outspend everybody. It's a safe plan in the sense that um, you know, the premier has and his staff has said that this is what we're presenting as a possibility. If we're reelected, some of these things may go in, but some may not. Again, the overreaction from the political left on this saying that, oh, God, all he all Doug Ford is trying to do is he's trying to spend your money to get reelected. Well, for God's sake, Scott, what do you think <laughs> governments do? What do you think parties propose? This is how politics is run. They make this sound like this is a novel concept. This is as age-old as politics in general. You promise things, and maybe sometimes you actually meet those promises. That's how it typically works. So did I like it in terms of the spending? No, I could have lived without a $198 billion election platform. Absolutely, I don't agree with it. Do I think it's the worst thing I've ever seen? No. Do I think that most of it will be implemented? I think some will, but I think some will go by the wayside. And do I think this is going to hurt Ford's re-election business? No. In fact, if anything, although it will frustrate some people, it might enhance them. Uh, Emphasis on building, which is something we haven't seen from the province in a long time. Your thoughts? Yeah, I mean, I think that's something a lot of people in Ontario have called for, whether it's a city like Hamilton, where you are, or Toronto, where I am. There have been called for more building, whatever it may be in terms of, obviously, you know, fair housing, et cetera, et cetera. Basically, people want to see the economy get moving and get rolling. And a lot of early economic forecasts seem to suggest that at least by next year, the provincial economy, in Ontario anyways, and certainly other provinces, will be a lot better. Now, 
economic forecasting is much like gambling in Las Vegas. Sometimes you're right, and a lot of times you're wrong. Let's hope that it's accurate. But regardless, the fact that uh, the Ford government has proposed something that shows not just building, but it seems to be also pro-growth is, is actually something that they can work to their advantage and use the argument that as we get out of the pandemic, gradually, things are starting to improve. People are starting to get out more. You know, they're going to restaurants, they're going to movies, they're going to concerts, et cetera, et cetera. We're starting to reclaim our lives again to some degree. With this in mind, I think things like building, being a part of the budget, or anything that's pro-growth or pro-economic growth, I think that's beneficial to the system, and it helps the Ford government. It doesn't hinder them. Michael Tobe, columnist for Troy Media, Looney Politics, contributor to the National Post and Washington Times, used to write the speeches for Stephen Harper, former Prime Minister. Michael, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. Have a great weekend. My pleasure. You too. If Scott Thompson isn't satisfied with an answer, he'll delve into the issue until he is. You're listening to Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. All right, great news for Canada. We remember during the global pandemic, the the beginning of the COVID-19 global pandemic, uh, we were kind of caught with our pants down and looking for vaccine as we did not produce them, waiting for vaccine from the United States and Europe and such. Well, now Moderna has announced that they will be building a plant to produce uh, vaccine for this and other uh, situations in the future in Montreal. To talk more about this, Marvin Ryder with us, professor at the Group School of Business, McMaster University. He's with us now. Marvin, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. I'm great. Thank you. Glad to be with you. So your thoughts on this, uh, this sort of snuck up and, and surprised that it's Moderna, not a Pfizer. Well, Actually, I'm not surprised. The announcement you're speaking about it actually carries from an announcement that was made in 2021. In late 2021, Moderna said, yes, we'd like to build a plant in Canada. That was warmly received. At that time, they said, we're not just sure where, so we're going to investigate the greater Toronto area and the greater Montreal area. And what was announced today was that after reviewing both areas, Montreal won, and they're going to have the, the new facility there. Um, mind you, having said that to you, it's not going to be open and producing vaccines until 2024. And we all hope that by that time, COVID is in a rearview mirror. So why are they building this? Well, of course, it's not just to produce COVID vaccines. It's to produce a whole family of vaccines using the messenger RNA or mRNA technology that Moderna was a, a leading light in. This is not. Does this have anything to do with the NAC facility they announced earlier, or that was a bio uh, version of this? It wasn't the uh, mRNA. Uh, yes. Well, you're right. So it, it, it was a. It's a little different thing that they had announced before, and this specifically is for mRNA. And along with building a plant, a factory to produce vaccine, it's also going to have a research center where they're hoping to develop next generations of mRNA vaccines. Vaccines. So, Scott, let me just give you a simple example. One of the holy grails of vaccines that have been worked on now for the better part of 40 years is a vaccine around AIDS, a human immunodeficiency virus. And we aren't there yet, but mRNA technology seems to hold some promise. So even if we can put COVID in the rearview mirror, uh, this new generation of technology could be used to produce all kinds of vaccines, including perhaps something for HIV. Uh, and again, going back to the Moderna, Pfizer, surprise one, not the other, does it matter? 
Yeah, no, I'm not. I'm not exactly surprised. What you have to do if you're one of these companies, because clearly they have multinational, um, a multinational footprint, is you want to look where you have plants at the moment, and then saying, "Would one in Canada help me out?" On a global scale, Canada is a relatively small player. Yes, I know we have 38 million people in this country, but you know, compared, for instance, to a France or an England, we're much smaller, and so their feeling had been pre-COVID that we can meet whatever Canada's needs are from our plants in the United States. Uh, as we've gotten further in this, and partly because I think our government, federal government, has come to the table with some sweeteners to say we'd really, really like to have a plant here in our own backyard, I think Moderna, being the new kid on the block, you know, Moderna has only right. been been going since 2010 they're still kind of establishing their global footprint i think it was easier to get them to come here than pfizer uh that being said pfizer seemed to be the canada's go-to vaccine during this pandemic do you think that matters at all because there was some some shopping going on but between these two mrna vaccines obviously it's like coke and pepsi do you think that will matter at all to consumers no uh, in the long run, it's not going to make a difference as long as we have this technology here and we have the ability to produce vaccines here. Now, it's not clear to me whether Moderna is also considering producing vaccines using what I'll call more standard technology or more well-established technology that doesn't involve mRNA. So, uh, for instance, the Johnson & Johnson vaccine, as one example, did not use mRNA technology. If we need flu vaccines, would they produce just an ordinary flu vaccine or an ordinary pneumonia vaccine using the standard technology. That's not clear in this announcement. My feeling is that what, what the government really wanted was a center of excellence on this new kind of technology to make sure that Canada had a seat at the table and that, if possible, we could even see some of these breakthroughs here. Certainly one of the attractive things about Canada is its health care system. And uh, say what you like about it, you know, it's a publicly funded system. We have a relatively healthy population, probably healthier than the United States. And we also have a wonderful health research community that Moderna, I think, would be very attracted to. Not that Pfizer wouldn't be attracted to it, but I think it would be even more valuable to a company like Moderna. Marvin Ryder with us, professor at the Group School of Business, McMaster University. Moderna announcing today they are going to manufacture vaccines in Canada. Marvin, as always, thank you for your time. Have a great weekend. Be well. I will. Thank you. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. Let's bring in Peter Grant, professor of political science, McMaster University, get his take on what's happening uh, in the world of political science and also a budget coming down or has come down this week uh, in Ontario. Many calling it a, a platform rather than a budget. Peter Grape with us, professor of political science, Mac University here now. Peter, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. I am, thanks. Uh, before we get started, your thoughts on um, the Rolling Thunder uh, protest? It doesn't seem to be too much going on at this point, although I, um, I guess there's more events played uh, planned for uh, tomorrow. Your thoughts on uh, on this? Obviously, Ottawa very much prepared for this one this time out. Uh, are you surprised we're not seeing more on this? Well, I guess we have to wait and see how many people show up and what happens when they show up. Uh, you know, again, uh, with the right, you know, rights to protest, uh, you know, presumably there'll be a capacity uh, for these groups, you know, to show up, but there's some limitations in terms of where they can stop in town and so on. So, again, it will be interesting to see how that that plays out. Uh, 
I mean, I guess there's also a bit of a, uh, you know, conflict for trying to figure out what happened in that earlier moment. I mean, a lot of the emphasis on this rally seems to be about how somehow uh, there was some desecration of the war memorial, uh, you know, by the removal of those protesters. Uh, you know, others people felt that the war memorial had been desecrated by the protesters. So, uh, you know, in a way, I guess it comes back to us as citizens to try and make sense of what happened earlier and and to wonder a bit you know, whether we have groups that are really trying to use, right, the memory uh, and the commemoration of, uh, you know, the fallen Canadians in previous wars um, to, you know, really amp up some very, uh, you know, contemporary politics and, and how as citizens we feel about that, whether we want that kind of commemoration uh, used in that manner or whether uh, we think it speaks poorly on protesters to try and, and you know, pull it onto themselves and use that, you uh, for, you know, to make cases which seem quite far from the commemoration uh, of uh, soldiers who gave their lives in past wars. Yeah, it, it's uh, at this point, it doesn't seem uh, really obvious as to uh, what is going to happen moving forward and, and, and whether we'll see any sort of groups uh, congregating in Ottawa uh, tonight or tomorrow, for that matter. All right, let's talk about the budget. Many have called this an election platform as opposed to an actual budget, obviously because now uh, Parliament is done and we're not voting on it. We move into an election campaign. Your thoughts on on how this all uh, transpired? Yeah, I mean, it's pretty cynical, and I, I presume the government knows that because we saw the same thing in 2018. Uh, with the Liberals, you know, putting a, a budget out just as they shut the door to the legislature and went into the election. So using the advantage that comes from the public paying attention to the the budget and the, the capacity to use, you know, the government uh, government's advertising to kind of promote that budget, uh, but without actually having to debate it uh, and have the opportunity for the opposition to ask questions in the House. Uh, I mean, the Conservatives were so upset after the Liberals did this in 2018 that they brought in a law saying that the budget had to be presented before the end of March or else the, you know, the Premier and Finance Minister would uh, lose part of their salary. Um, but then um, more recently, they repealed that law that allowed them to do this. So in terms of feeding you know, citizen cynicism around this, so I, I guess you couldn't have done much better than that. How does opposition deal with this situation now? without obviously voting on it uh, and now just rolling into an election campaign, which I guess everybody's been into anyway, because we've we've seen the grocery list come out over the last couple of weeks. But if you're the opposition, how do you deal with this situation? Well, I, I mean, I think in some ways uh, parties can think that they're too smart about these things and they they don't understand the citizen cynicism on the one hand. And the, the second part is that so much of what we as citizens get in terms of what governments are doing comes through the media. And so the ability of uh, Andrea Horvath and Stephen Del Duca and Mike Schreiner, uh, you know, to stand up in press conferences and point out what's wrong uh, in this budget uh, from their point of view, uh, you know, is still there. And, the, you know, the media is clean, clearly uh, keen to report on it uh, uh, because they want that feedback in terms of what was in this budget. So in that way, given that we have the election call coming next week, I don't think it provides that much of a disadvantage uh, to the opposition parties not having that opportunity to ask questions in question period, uh, you know, and begin to debate the budget. So, you know, in some ways, I think, you know, as with the Liberals in 2018 and, and the Conservatives this time, that there may be being more cute uh, than they need to be, because ultimately, you know, citizens are paying a bit more attention as the election's coming on. And they're paying attention not to what's happening at Queen's Park, but what's being reported out of the media. Do you anticipate any surprises during this campaign? As I mentioned, the, a lot of this has already been released on, on from all parties that have thrown out little tidbits of what they might do. Uh, what do you think this campaign's going to be like? 
Uh, I mean, it's going to be very short. I mean, Ontario election campaigns are only four weeks long. And with increasing numbers of people voting early, uh, you know, on advanced polls and with advanced polls being made more available this time, you know, in many cases, you know, we'll be halfway into the campaign and a lot of votes will already be in the box. So I I suspect we'll see a real emphasis in the early weeks of the campaign to to try and strike. Um, You know, while things have been testy between the government and the opposition, uh, on a number of files, you know, including the use of, uh, you know, the notwithstanding clause or uh, uh, the use of emergency powers during the pandemic. Uh, I think we have a pretty classic uh, election in terms of different visions about where money should be invested. We saw with the budget an emphasis on on roads and subways and building hospitals as a sort of key to it, sort of building hard physical infrastructure. I think we'll see with the NDP a push, and we have seen in their early materials, to kind of the softer infrastructure of providing services like, you know, uh, access to mental health, uh, pharma care and dental care. So I think it'll be a pretty, uh, pretty classic election based on, uh, you know, which vision of where we need to go in Ontario we want to support. Peter Grant with us, Professor of Political Science, McMaster University. Peter, as always, thank you for the time. Have a great weekend. Be well. And you too. The economy and what has been happening this week. Uh, lots going on, including obviously uh, the Russian invasion of Ukraine, lockdowns in China, as uh, as obviously uh, COVID nineteen rates get out of hand. There, they're just not getting a handle on it. And the term petro dictatorship. Let's bring in Eric Cam, professor of macroeconomics, and with Toronto Metropolitan University is with us now. Eric, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. Scott, I am well, and thank you for getting the name right. You're the first. Uh, you know what? And I had to I had to think about that because in front of me, the old one is written, so I had to make that adjustment on the fly. Uh, but, uh, yeah, good for that. Uh, anyway, moving on, uh, Eric, uh, obviously we, we know the supply chain issues. We know the inflation issues. We've been talking about supply chain issues uh, ever since the beginning of this pandemic. Now we're seeing uh, Beijing, Shanghai uh, really getting hit hard. Uh, by COVID and and with their zero policy, locking people up and such, or, or locking them down inside their homes. What does this do to an already fragile uh, supply chain, considering China's the factory for the world? It is the factory for the world, and so it makes a, an already fragile supply chain even more fragile. I mean, this is a really big deal, because if you look at the largest importing and exporting nations of the world, it's not going to surprise you at all that China is a massive exporter and sends its goods all over the world. So many goods that it's really too many to count. But there are many, many countries, many, many areas of the world that rely on Chinese goods. So now they've shut down their economy effectively by setting their workers home, locking their doors and saying we can't produce those goods. So as you can imagine, in a world that was already mired in a supply curve moving the wrong way and demand only increasing, well, there's only two things that are going to happen. You're going to have an excess shortage of goods, even more excess than it was previous. And I hate to tell you, but when that happens, prices only go in one direction and that's up. How are they going to get through this? Because there doesn't seem to be a a short-term solution here. There's hesitancy with the vaccine uptake. The vaccine itself that's available there is not as good uh, when it comes to the variants such as Omicron and such. So they're really struggling. I mean, will they ask for outside help here? They really have no choice. I mean, what we don't know 
is, well, there's two ways to get goods. And this isn't going to surprise you. You can either get them yourself, which means you have large inventories or stocks of goods built up, or you buy from outside nations. Now, the problem is, is that in most countries of the world, we can look at inventories and see what things are like in terms of goods and services and how that country is doing domestically. Without making anybody upset, China is not one of those nations. They're not exactly forthcoming with their inventories. And for that matter, they're not forthcoming with much macroeconomic information. So it's a bit of a black hole. So we don't know what they have in terms of supplies, but we can assume that if it's not enough, and in a nation of over a billion people, that's a pretty safe assumption, they're going to be buying from outside nations. Now, that may seem like a bit of a boom for some of these countries who sell goods to China, but it's a dangerous game because China sells much more than it buys, and it has to rely on nations which may or may not be favorable to China, who are right now still buying a lot of Russian petroleum, and you start to wrap up a lot of economics and a lot of politics into the same basket, Scott. So it's a pretty tenuous situation. So should uh, China be calling Pfizer or Moderna? Well, China could do a lot of things. But again, China doesn't do a lot of things the way other nations do, and we'll never mm. know the truth. So I'd like to think they would. I'd like to think they would they would increase their vaccinations. I'd like to think they would do things that other economies and other countries have done. But again, I'm not trying to avoid the question, but there's only so much information you're going to get out of China. So we probably will never really know the truth. All right. The other big issue in the world, obviously, Russia's invasion of Ukraine. We certainly know the stranglehold that Russia has over Europe and such when it comes to energy. Uh, we're hearing the term petrodictatorship, uh, which is, I guess, relatively new to, to, to the mainstream. What can you tell us about this? How has this or will it change energy policy, not only in Canada or maybe not, or, but even around the world? How will, how will the world look at this term? Well, I think the world is going through a change. And I think that while in the 90s and early 2000s, the watchwords were trade and, and uh, things like that, now a lot of nations are starting to look inward and saying, maybe we don't want to be as tied up in exports and imports as we used to be. We have to be more self-sufficient. But I have bad news for you and the good listenership, which is Russia, hmm. sadly, is starting to win. And I don't want to say on a geopolitical war scale, but in terms of an economic scale and in terms of its petroleum, it's starting to win. Countries are not on mass buying less petroleum. Countries like China and India, and these are very big countries. And now China has them pay. Uh, sorry, the Russian government has them paying for those in in their own currency. So now yeah. you've got two things going on at the same time. You have countries with billions of people buying petroleum in the currency of Russia, which is propping up the Russian dollar. And I know no one's going to want me to say this, and I'm going to get some nasty Twitters back, and that's okay. But they're starting to win. They're starting to have their commodity purchased in their own currency. And that's a win-win for Russia. So what can the rest of the world do? Well, it can hang on for dear life, but it can also look into alternative sources. And so you have many countries rich in oil, Canada being one of them, that should be looking at each other saying we've got to be less dependent on this nation and more dependent on ours.
Uh, many will say we have to, instead of, of, of concentrating on this type of energy, but go right to renewables, but clearly the world is not there yet and won't be there for a while. Will we see policy changes in North America with both the United States and Canada and perhaps pipelines? Well, like you said, there's a short run and there's a long run. And so everything we've discussed here is very long run. Pipelines are quite long run. Um, Anything that takes time to build and manufacture is a long run. So you really have to differentiate between what is a short and what is a long run fix. Uh, I think that a lot of nations, again, as we talked about before, are going to have to make some tough decisions. I think pipelines have to go in and countries that have a comparative advantage or an efficiency in producing resources like petroleum and oil and gasoline and can refine it themselves have to start doing that for themselves because we can't look at a country like Russia and trust it to be our supplier anymore. But I but you cannot just pull a lever And here's an editorial comment. You can't offer an economy where so many people are one paycheck away from insolvency. You can't tell them you'll give them a couple thousand dollars back on an $80,000 Tesla. So again, I I, I don't like to see the glasses half empty here, Scott, but it's a very tenuous time. And I think you're right. I think it's time for countries to really reevaluate their oil and gas needs. Uh, we've only got a few uh, 30 seconds left or so. Inflation is huge. Uh, all you have to do is drive to the gas pump, go into the grocery store, uh, even trying to help out the restaurants. Uh, prices have gone up and it's making an impact. W- what do you see short term here? I see a mess short term. Again, short term and long term. Short term, there is really very little, if anything, that the government can do about this right now. We are in unprecedented historic times of low supply and high demand. And I actually went to a lecture myself yesterday about this. And somebody from McGill was talking about in the short run, there is just nothing. The government is powerless against some factors. In the long run, well, you're going to keep raising interest rates and you're going to keep having anti-inflation measures like that. But for the next year or 18 months, Scott, again, sad to be the bearer of bad news. Inflation is a little bit out of control and the central bank and the government can talk a good game, but they don't know what to do. Eric Cam, Professor of Macroeconomics, Monetary Growth with Toronto Metropolitan University. Eric, as always, thanks so much for the time. Be well. Have a great weekend. You too. Stay healthy, Scott. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. Joining us, Scott Radley, host of the Scott Radley Show, columnist with your Hamilton Spectator. He is with us now. Scott, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. Who? is the masochist who requests that on all requests Friday. <laughs> I have they no idea. What if they forget not to put in who's in the small world after all, just to really make us have an earworm all weekend? Uh, you'll have to take it up with Danny. Uh, Danny, Tom says, okay. Yeah, Tom says it was Danny. Blame him. Uh, and uh, normally we drop the Russian at this point, because I know that's your favorite band, but uh, sorry, didn't make the cut today, Radley. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's a close call between Sharon, Lois, and Brom and Rush. Yeah, it's, it's a tough one. Is it Brom or Bram? Gary, Bram. You know what? So here's the thing. Funny thing, funny story. Cause I had him on the show a while back, and I kept calling him Brom because we know someone, we've known someone for years with the same spelling name, but he goes by Brom. Mm. And I, so on the second time, I Did called call him Bram. Bono Bono? No, but unless oh. he's a pro. Um, <laughs> but so anyway, I called Bram. Brom twice, and he corrected me on the air. He goes, it's Bram. And I was like, okay, no! sorry. Oops, sorry. Uh, yeah, my mistake. I know. 
it's when you know someone it's like when you it's like when I know, you know yeah. someone with a name and you've got a really bad association with it and sure. you, like someone you didn't like or an old girlfriend or something and then you meet someone else it's like ah that you know yeah that name sticks around it's got me anyway carry on i that that's my reason for why I mispronounced he must have been thinking brand. you're the only one that hasn't heard of sharon lois and brown i've heard I mean, of them but i always thought it was sharon lois and brown <laughs> I, I don't it's not on my regular playlist let's put it that way well let's get it there all right uh we've been talking all afternoon about the rolling thunder uh protest uh, that uh, I, I'm not sure it's going to happen. Maybe something will happen tomorrow. I don't know. I'm not sure this is about a Rolling Thunder protest. I think this is more about an exercise for the great people at the Ottawa Police Service who want to, and rightly so, show the citizenry of Ottawa that they have some sort of control over their city. But, uh, you know, when the convoy was on, we had reporters on the QEW, on the 401, uh, and this was the Friday before. There were cars and trucks, sorry, trucks coming in from wherever, and I I haven't seen any uh, sites where motorbikers are hanging out and gathering and getting ready for a, a thing that's supposed to start in seven minutes. And I'm looking at my uh, Ottawa City cam, and uh, Ottawa looks as boring as it ever does. So uh, w- what do you think's happening here? They all ended up in Port Dover with the guy in the pink bikini bottom. Port Dover is way more welcoming than Ottawa. Let's go there. The leather thong guy, whatever it is. Yeah, no, it's... um. Look, this this thing, and we you know we've discussed this yesterday. This thing to me um, is this a manufactured protest? It's a manuf a manufactured protest or a manufactured crisis in Ottawa because okay. I think it's more the latter. And I think yes, you know everything that happened with the with the truckers and the police got slammed for that, and we're now having hearings and inquiries and all the rest of the stuff. And so now anybody says we're staging a protest in Ottawa and it sounds like, you know, we're going to mobilize the, uh, the entire police department of Eastern Canada to make sure. Maybe we should have called the, called the emergency act today. But, and, you know, I think we said this yesterday, right near the end when we were chatting right near the end of the time, the concern with this for me, Scott, is that because we had a trucker convoy that again, you may or may not have agreed with, you may or may not have thought the response was correct, whatever, it doesn't matter. Because we had a trucker convoy, it now appears that anyone else who says they're going to protest, suddenly now we're going to crack down on that one. And I think that's a real problem in our society where you are supposed to be allowed to protest. And the idea that if you're going to roll in with motorcycles, uh, that somehow now you are endangering the lives <laughs> of those in Ottawa... Uh, you know, look, it's good for the police. Oh, wait a sec, Scott. Here come some. Here come some bikers right now. Here they come. Here they go. Oh, 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 the, mo- oh. the mopeds have arrived. Yeah, the mopeds have arrived. Um, you know, I, it, look, if we if we get to the point now where every time someone says we're going to have a protest, that the police go on high alert, and I think police should be alert. I just don't know that they need to be talking about mobilizing everybody and scaring people in Ottawa but with, or, or anyone else. Anywhere else it's going to happen. I, I, I just think that we, we are now using, or some people are now using, what happened as a way to challenge or deflect or deny, maybe not deny, but certainly um, villainize anyone else who might want to protest in Ottawa because, hey, you're going to become the truckers. Hmm. I don't know. I- 
I think this is more an exercise in what to do next time than it is on anything that is really happening. Oh, wait, there's another one. There's one more. He's got a Trump flag, that one. I'd watch him. I don't think there's going to be a next time, Scott. Not like the trucker protest. And look, if you are the police in Ottawa and you can't control motorcycles, you've got a bigger problem than with what your police department is doing. Scott Radley, host of the Scott Radley Show. You can read him in your Hamilton Spectator coming up right after the 6 o'clock news. You do not want to miss this. Uh, Scott, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. Have a good weekend. Oh, hang on. There's another one. Hey, hey, off the sidewalk. Hey, you beat my front lawn. Thanks for listening to the Hamilton Today podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday afternoons from 3 to 6 on 900CHML and online at 900CHML.com. All right, as always... We leave it to you, the taxpaying customer, to have the last word. Semi-trucks started it. Motorcycles are coming next. I think we got to really make this green movement really happen. Next convoy that goes to Ottawa should be consisting solely of Priuses and bicycles.